We are starting a new sermon series. It's called How to Read the Bible. Now, I want to, I want to, I got to be upfront about two things this morning, and here's my first confession. You may not know this. We are people of the word. There you go. I've let it out of the bag, right? So if you come to a place called WordServe, and the church is named WordServe, we're probably people of the word. If not, we should be. We thought it was so important that not only did we put it in our church name, we put it first in our church name. We are people of the Word. So it would behoove us to become good at the Word. And I don't mean good in terms of bragging, but well acquainted with the Word. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend the next month on how to read the Bible. And whoops, doesn't seem to be as happy as it used to be. Well, now it works. Yeah, now it did a double tap. One back, please. <laughs> okay, here's where we're going. Jesus is the Word. Jesus fulfills the Word. Then we're going to look at the book that breathes and the book that lives. So here's my, my, uh, my going in, the, the second uh, confession I need to make. I don't know why that's suddenly not working. Now it, and it double tapped again. There we go. Okay, Here, here's my second confession. Now, this is January. I'm a pastor. We are people of the Word. You're probably expecting me to say something like, this is a great time to start a Bible reading plan where you read the Bible in a year. That's what you're expecting me to say. Let me tell you something. I have accepted that challenge five different times. And now you're expecting me to say, and it changed my life and I've never been the same. That's not what I'm going to say. I started that challenge five different times. How many times did I finish it? <laughs> Zero. Anybody with me? Yeah. How many people have actually read the Bible in a year in a program like that? Good, you are a disciplined individual. Okay, two, two. Yeah, that's not bad, right? But, but here's the thing. I didn't have the proper lens to read the Bible in a year. Now, hear me clearly. I am not bashing the idea of a program that has you read the Bible in a year. That is not my point. My point is there is a lens that we need to look through that will help that come to life, that will help that be something that we actually apply in our lives. So maybe you haven't tried to read the Bible in a year, but I bet you signed up for other Bible reading plans, and I'm not going to ask if you completed them or not. But what I am going to ask is, here's the most important question when it comes to reading the Bible. Why are you doing it? Why do you read the Bible? And, and, and so there's a lot of different reasons that people do that. Click. <laughs> there we go. Improvise, adapt, overcome. Here we go. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons that, that people read the Bible. Now, uh, maybe you know someone, I'm sure it's nobody here, maybe you know someone that treats it like the magic eight ball. You know what I mean? Like, God, should I take this job? Have you all heard this old joke? You know, I was trying to make a life decision about, you know, what way I should go, so I treat it like the magic eight ball. I open it and it says, uh, Judas went and hanged himself. Let's try that again. Go thou and do likewise. No, no. <laughs> That's not the way this thing works, right? So now, now you're going to have to clear, hear me clearly because you're going to walk away from this thinking that I'm against reading the Bible in a year and I'm against memorizing the Bible. I am not. Here's the thing, though. When we read prescriptions, and that's all that we know, we know that one phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. That's not a bad thing to know. But if that's all we know, we're going we're gonna to come up against something that is bigger than that, that can overcome us. So we need to have an applicational knowledge of the Bible. It needs to become a way of life for us. And if you think about it, other people will read it because of the knowledge. They, they want the knowledge. 
and they think that somehow knowing the Bible will, will get them in the gates of heaven. It, it is anywhere that you've read or heard say that if you know the pages of Scripture, you'll get into heaven. Anybody? If so, let me know what Bible study that was. Um, no, it's, it's about belief in Jesus Christ. That, that's what does the trick, right? But the better that we know this book and what it says, the better that we'll know God, and that is the point. The whole point of Scripture is for us to have a deeper relationship with God, specifically through Jesus Christ, if we're Jesus' followers. Now, think about ways that you get to know people and ways that God would want to get to know us. He tried the whole revelation, you know, write things down, we'll, we'll get Ten Commandments that you can follow, uh, and then when that didn't work out, he sent several prophets, people that spoke on his behalf, and how did that go? You get the idea. And so for the first time, there's this culmination of something magical that happens. Not magical, that's the wrong word to use. Something very unique in history when Jesus Christ comes. So think of it this way. Uh, I, I went on a kick for a while there about Abraham Lincoln. I wanted to know everything about Abraham Lincoln. And so you know, I could say some of his quotes. Uh, I read his biography. I read a book called Lincoln on Leadership, which is outstanding if you want a leadership book. Uh, I knew everything I could think of about Abraham Lincoln. But you know what would have helped me know him better? Is if he had been face-to-face with me. So if I spent time with him, I would know him in a completely different way than just being able to quote facts or quote quotes from him. So as God is making all these requirements, he's trying to communicate with the written commandments. He's trying to communicate through the voices of the prophets, which we continually ignore and do our own thing anyway. And so for the first time, he says, look, I'm going to meet you face to face. This is the word becoming flesh. This is Jesus Christ. This is God face to face. It's by far the best way to get to know someone, and that is the point of this whole thing. So today we're beginning with the end in mind. What I'm saying is the whole reason that we read this is to have a deeper relationship with God, specifically Christ. And if we're going to do that, we need to work through this, the, the things that God has done, the things that he has said in the lens of Jesus Christ. I hope that all makes sense. Now, John does a masterful job. This is a genius thing that he does. Next click. When he says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's easy to read something like that, especially because it's right off the get-go. John 1.1, 1, 1, right? And we read something like that. We're not really warmed up for Bible study. It's like trying to do a deadlift of 500 pounds without stretching. You know, it's just like, oh, that kind of hit me wrong. And you don't think about this. This thing's like, this is philosophical gobbledygook. It doesn't even make any sense. But I'm here to tell you that this phrase and the phrases that follow it are pure genius. John is a genius, and we're going to unpack that this morning. So we're in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, right off the get-go. The next slide, please. And if you, if you can follow the words, that would be great. This is what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. These are the words of God for the people of God, and for these words we are grateful. John is genius. John recognizes what Christ is. And John is inviting the entire world to get to know 
God through this Jesus Christ. Word became flesh. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's unpack this a little bit. Next slide, please. The first idea is Jesus being the Word. What is the Word? In Greek, it's logos, right? You could always tell the first-year seminary students because they said logos, but the proper pronunciation just for you, if you want to appear slick, is logos, right? All right, logos, that, that is the Greek word for word. Now, it's not word like the words I'm using to communicate with you. This is much, much bigger. And in the Greek mind, this is a totality of a message. This is a platform, if you will. And logos in the Greek philosophy was something that was an impersonal force that was instrumental in creating the order of the universe. They could recognize that, hey, this world tends to work on logic. And so there is this impersonal force called logos that makes all this happen and this vast message of how uh, humanity should thrive and survive. So when John says the word, he is saying this impersonal force that you Greeks think is impersonal became flesh. This impersonal force that you speak of that created all things has a name and a face, and he's walking and dwelling among us. So this is a, a blatant invitation to those who are not of the Jewish persuasion. This is the, the outreach, the first big outreach to the rest of the world, the Gentiles. And thank God, because you and I wouldn't be here this morning if he hadn't done that, right? So this word, logos, is on purpose. John is specifically opening up the floodgates here to everyone. And so you may be thinking, okay, well, so the, the logos, that, that's good, he gets the Greeks, but does that mean he's leaving the Jewish people behind? No, back up for just a second, next slide. In the beginning was the word. Think about who that would impact the most. Whose language is that? Let's go back for a second to Genesis chapter 1. What's the very first phrase? Ah, there you go. See, I didn't even have, you knew that, right? In the beginning, this is starting with the Jewish people. In the beginning was this logos. And now this word has become flesh. This is the one that you're looking for. He has a name. It's Jesus. He has a face. You can see it. You can talk to him. You can walk with him. And that was God's goal from the beginning. If you think about how Eden was formed, what was paradise? It was walking daily in his presence, talking with him. That's his soul desire. That's what he's still trying to get back to. So in the beginning is very specifically targeted to the Jewish people as well, saying this is, we're not leaving you out here. We're not making something up. This was from the beginning. This is the way it has always been. Jesus was present. Through him, all things were created. All things were made. And the next one dwelt uh, as if, you know, because I, I understand if I'm one of the Jewish people, I'm probably feeling left out right now, feeling a little hurt, right? So he specifically, John, uses this word dwelt. And why is this word significant? Because dwelt, another translation of that is to tabernacle. Does that sound familiar to anybody? You know, when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, they set up the tent of meeting. And any time the presence of God was present, there was a cloud over that, and Moses went to talk to him. And the response of the people, any time they saw the cloud over the tabernacle, was to stop everything that they were doing and worship. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. See, John is genius. He has sewn up every loophole. He has sewn up every uh, invitation out there. No one is left behind in this invitation to experience this one Jesus Christ. 
It's absolutely genius. So when we read the Bible, my encouragement is to you is let's start with Jesus, the Word, made flesh, tabernacling among us, and let a response be worship. Why Jesus? Bill, I thought this was a course about, you know, like a, a section about reading the Bible. It's going to be, but I'm trying to give you a, a life hack here, right? Because the thing that made the difference for me in reading the Bible, uh, in case you're concerned, I have read the whole Bible. Don't worry. I just didn't do it all at once in a year, okay? But what made the difference for me was putting this in this lens of Christ. Because Christ has one unique thing. Well, he has several unique things. The one unique thing that he does for us when it comes to reading Scripture is he forms a bridge. Next slide, please. He forms a... Oh, sorry. To what end? Uh, to what end is about the relationship, right? We don't just learn for knowledge. We don't just learn so that we can spew facts. And, and again... If you're in a course and it says, what was the name of you know, Moses' father, you know, whatever, I'm not saying that's not important. What I'm saying is that that's all that we get to. We don't really know how to apply this knowledge. And so the application becomes hugely important. And this is what Jesus does for us. He provides a bridge, a unique bridge between the interpretation of the word and the application of the word. I don't know if you've ever run across people who use the Bible as a weapon or maybe misuse Bible, or misquote Scripture. It happens every day. But these are the two places where I think humans get it wrong most often. We don't interpret correctly, or we don't apply correctly. And Jesus manages to do both of these things. And so as we look at Scripture, and we look at how Jesus would do this, we can start to answer a lot of questions. Years ago, there was a famous campaign called WWJD. Anybody remember what that stands for? Yeah. What would Jesus do, right? Here's my problem with what would Jesus do. What can be answered by fact? What did he do? Uh, he cared for the poor. What did he do? He died on the cross. What did he do? He arose from the grave. That's a fact, but does that really transform or inspire you without the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say? It doesn't me. So here's the cool thing. What would Jesus do is not a bad starting point, but why don't we also ask, how would Jesus do? And why would Jesus do? And when would Jesus do? Because that's the kind of questions you can answer when you really get to know someone beyond the surface level. So my encouragement is that we ask those questions as we approach Scripture. And I wanted to just buzz through in, in a couple of instances where Jesus does this interpretation and application correctly. Now, understand, this could be a whole other sermon, which is not my intent. But if you want to delve more into this, you can jump into Matthew chapter 4, and it's the temptations of Jesus. This is the whole thing that starts Jesus on his ministry journey. Before he gets out in public, he's got to go through these temptations led by the Holy Spirit into the desert. So we're going to look at these, how he interprets the word, and then how he applies the word as a model for us, the importance of knowing the word. The first one, are you hungry? Many of you are probably familiar with this story, but he's been out 40 days uh, in the desert. He hasn't had a thing to eat. And the, so the, the tempter comes and he says, hey, uh, listen to this phrase. If you're really the son of God, why don't you turn the stones into bread? See, the, the enemy is attacking the very fundamental need. I mean, this shows Jesus' humanity. You don't get hungry if you're not human, right? Fully human, fully God. But he was hungry, and that was a temptation. So Jesus, son of the living God, word become flesh, what does he say in defense? 
Man does not live by bread alone, but on the very words that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, was he, did he just make that up? He's actually quoting out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. So let me get this straight. The son of the living God is quoting scripture. Yes. Yes, he is. He's quoting the word of God. coming out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. He responds to the enemy's attack with scripture because that is the word of God from time immemorial. I think that's fascinating. You know, as intelligent and as with it as Jesus was, he could have said a million different things, but he chooses to go back to Scripture. That's the importance of having this hid in our heart. That's the importance of applying this in our lives. The, the thing that, that gets me, though, is in the second one, if we go ahead to that one, uh, the throwdown. He says, okay, let's do this. I'm going to take you up to the highest point of the temple, and I want you to throw yourself down. And see if God will catch you. And it's even slicker than that, because here's what's really scary. Satan quotes scripture, throw yourself down, you will not be harmed. That's uh, out of the Psalms. And here's what's scary about that. You think we know scripture? Satan knows scripture too. The enemy knows scripture probably better than we do. And the enemy will start with absolute truth. Yeah, that sounds perfect. And there'll be just that little nudge that's thrown in there at the end that will get you off course if we continue to follow that way. That's the danger of them knowing Scripture as well. Well, it's all written down. It's not a secret. They're going to know. We just have to know how to apply it better. So he says, throw yourself down. See if God will catch you. Quoting Scripture. What is Jesus' response? More Scripture. He fires back. Again, quoting out of Deuteronomy, do not put your Lord God to the test. Jesus never falters from the Scripture, the Word of God, and that is his great defense. Now, the thing that, that scares me here, not only does Satan know Scripture, but he constantly tries to undermine God's authority. Did you hear the phrase in the first two temptations, if you're really the Son of God? Now, I mentioned earlier Texans tend to be a little competitive. Yeah, it, if you're really the son of oh, yeah, I'll show you some son of God. I got a whole can of son of God here. I'm going to open it up. Right? <laughs> that almost went south. Right? <laughs> we would probably do that. Jesus does not stray because he is solidly on the Scripture. That's a lesson to be learned, and Satan knows Scripture too. So finally, the third one is Satan goes, okay, I can't tempt him on the physical hunger. I can't tempt him on the safety. Uh, you know, one other thing that always fascinates me about that temple thing, what Satan is really questioning is, will God keep you safe? And here's, don't miss this subtle piece. Where did this take place? He lifted him up to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem, the, the temple where they worship God, right? And what was that associated with in ancient, uh, ancient Israel? God's very presence. That's where God dwelt. So in other words, Jesus, I'm going to take you away from the wilderness where you're not isolated. I'm going to put you at the highest point of your father's house, and let's see if he'll keep you safe. Does God promise ever to keep us safe? No. In fact, uh, this Christian journey can be very dangerous. Ask anybody around the world who has to hide their Bible. Ask anybody around the world who can't meet in public or will be put in prison or worse for praying in public. This is not safe, but that's not God's promise. And, and, and there's a safety far beyond the physical safety in this world that I would prefer to have. 
So Satan knows exactly where to twist it. And this last one, he goes, okay, we're going to do this. Look at all these kingdoms. Just bow down and worship me, and you can have it all. Does that sound like a modern thing? Like You can have it all. Yeah, you just got to not do this and, and worship that. Worship the money, worship the status, worship the other things, and you can have it all. And Jesus says what? Be gone. He quotes Scripture one more time. And, and it's the very fundamental piece of Scripture that God wrote in the beginning of the Ten Commandments. What is it? You'll have no other gods before me. Be gone, Satan. And Satan leaves. Now, here's the thing I note about that last temptation and Jesus' interpretation and application of Scripture. Satan will always offer you a cheaper version of what you already have. Let me say that again. Satan will always offer you a cheaper version of what you already have. Jesus already had all the kingdoms and all the glory. He just, you know, it, it, maybe you've heard this phrase, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. He already had that, just not yet. There's a, a, a timeline factor again. Satan will always offer you a cheaper, quicker version of what you already have as a child of God. So next time we're tempted to take that shortcut and get that thing that looks really shiny and really good, recognize you've already got that and more in the right time. In the meantime, there's faith. How does he know that? Gosh, it's written down in the playbook. Our ability to interpret and apply this is huge. Now, the thing that makes it even more important, I think, in my mind, is what all this sets Jesus up for. Think fast forward to the cross. He's hanging on the cross, and you think he's hungry? Yeah, I bet he is. You think he's thirsty? Absolutely he is. In fact, he says, I thirst. And what's the mocking from the crowd? What phrase do they use to start the mocking from the crowd? If you are really the son of God, come on down. And I can imagine in Jesus' mind, you go, no, 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 we've been here before. I passed this test. I'm not biting it, not doing that. Is God keeping me safe? Well, not at the moment, but this is necessary. If you came down, could you have all the kingdoms of the world for a moment? But if I stay here, I'll have it forever. Can you imagine that conversation in Jesus' head? Jesus knew Scripture because he was the Word. He knew how to interpret it. He knew how to apply it. These are lessons that would be good for us to copy. But Jesus is much more than just the Word. And I mentioned before that we are people of the Word. So, yes, we are people of the Word, but not in just the I know the facts or I can read the pages in the book. We are people of the Word in that it builds a deep relationship with this Jesus Christ. It builds a deep sense of mission. Because Jesus is more than the Word, he's also the way. So this is not just something to be read and observed on occasion or put on a bookshelf because it looks nice. This is something to be lived. This is a way of life. And in that process, that's one of the questions as we approach this table today that the, question, the, the disciples had as well. As Jesus is there on that last night, uh, next slide, please. As Jesus is there on that night, Sharing the Last Supper, there's a lot of questions that the disciples have, and he tells them, hey, I'm going to go away, 
I'm going to prepare a place for you. Uh, that where you are, uh, uh, that where I am, you may be also. And so Thomas, God bless Thomas. He always asks the best questions outside of Peter, maybe. Thomas says, God, we want to follow you. Jesus, we want to follow you, but we don't know the way. What, what's the way? And what does Jesus answer? Next slide, please. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. God's whole point in this was to have a relationship. And the best relationship isn't through writing, isn't through hearing, isn't through the ability to quote. The best relationship is face to face. Did you hear what he said at the end? From now on, you will know him. Now on, you, have, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word made flesh. This is Jesus come down. This is God communicating face to face. And this is both the starting point and the end point for everything that we do. Because we are people of the word. And because people of the word are people of the way. The truth. And the life. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Help us to keep our eyes focused on him. Help us to recognize when we've strayed from that way. Help us to interpret these pages of scripture, not just with our eyes and our brain, but with our heart and our hands and our feet so that the world may know you and the world may know the way. In Jesus, pray this in Jesus' name.